Hi, you're listening to Trendlines, where we reject the headlines and follow the trendlines. Hi, I'm Sana. And I'm Nate. We're the founders, hosts, and producers of Trendlines. On episode two, let's take a closer look at a major trend we saw on election night 2020. Americans sent a divided Congress to Washington, D.C. to work for them. The control of power in the Senate rests with the outcome of the January 5th runoff elections for both Georgia seats. The Democrats retain speakership in the House of Representatives, but rather than picking up the estimated 5 to 10 seats, they lost seats to Republicans, who now command the largest minority party numbers since World War II. So now they're emboldened. After these worse-than-expected election results, the House Democrats are searching for someone to blame. And progressives and moderates seem certain that the other one is the culprit. Full disclosure, Nate and I both consider ourselves centrist Democrats. I have always thought that I would be on the far left of any political spectrum. I grew up as the liberal firebrand in my traditional conservative home. I remember 15 years ago, 15 plus years ago when I was in high school, I was protesting the Iraq war and demanding marriage equality in the United States when I was in high school. But watching the last four years in this country, I have come to realize that while I applaud the goals of the progressives and hope that we do get to that point to make them our eventual reality, I am not a progressive myself. I've coined the term RBG Democrat because I'm dedicated to that level of small progress that is incrementally built, but so strongly cemented that it cannot be rolled back which is the ethos that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg litigated by and the legacy she left us. I do not join the progressives in demanding overhauls of our systems because I do not believe that that would be sustainable, nor do I believe that that would really help us to gain any ground whatsoever. So Nate, when did you realize that you were a centrist? You know, it was it was this year that I, I realized that. Similar to you, I grew up rather liberal and had friends that had amazing, bold ideas that I just wanted to support. But I I soon realized that a lot of those ideas didn't hold water. I feel like Bernie Sanders was that icon, was that man, was the liberal agenda, and just could not make it work, not once, but twice. And, And seeing where our country is right now with our current leadership, which thank goodness is on their way out, but still concerns me realizing how far right we are right now, how far left can we truly expect to be? So similar to you, I'm interested in small, incremental, surefire ways to move our country forward that can't be rolled back. I, I love the idea of the Green New Deal. I love the idea of Medicare for All. But I realize that I value more getting our country back to where we can talk across the aisle rather than shouting. And and that really hit me this year. I'm learning more about what it means to be a centrist. And I I really think there's going to have to be a rebranding of Democratic Party values and foundations for our next campaign, because as we've seen, you know, what we were trumpeting as the democratic ideal didn't win over nearly as many Americans as I was hoping for. As we were all assuming, we, we hoping that we might. I do, um, I, I do like the idea that it, there should be bipartisan work on 
on the hill. But beyond that, I do believe that we need to be offering people all across this country a message that they can find digestible. And I I think that there's just so much misinformation that we need to recognize that we are continuing to add on to a message that is being highly misconstrued. And the fact that, you know, during the three presidential debates, Trump mentioned Bernie Sanders and AOC so many times, trying to tie Biden to the far left agenda, trying Mm -hmm. to scare away independent voters, moderate voters, um, anyone who was unhappy with, with the way that Trump had handled the last four years by saying, well, look, if you vote for Biden, you're actually voting for Bernie. You're actually voting for the AOC, you know, and Ilhan Omar and the squad agenda, because that is actually an effective argument. And one of the things that I really want to talk about is the way that America responded on election night. Now, there were a lot of polls that we'd had leading up to <laughs> leading up to the day, and a lot of them turned out to be completely wrong. So for example, for the Senate seat in Maine, I don't think there was any poll in the last month that showed Susan Collins ahead of uh, Sarah Gideon, her Democratic challenger. Susan Collins handily retained her seat. And in South Carolina, we saw a lot of polls that showed there was a really good chance for Jamie Harrison to unseat Senator Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham beat him by double digits. And so, you know, one of the things that progressives should be wary about, and us too, centrists too, is the reliance on polls, which I don't think that anyone should really put a whole lot of stock or place a high premium on that. But one of the things that I have been noticing in looking at the data and looking at the trend lines of election night, people really did not vote down ballot. And one of the examples that I can uh, share with you is just in the county that I'm in, right now in east uh, southeast texas it's jefferson county a lot of democrats ran for county office and most of the candidates who ran were african american every single democrat who ran for office in this county won they won their seats we have a county sheriff we have other roles the democrats won handily in local government the county went entirely to donald trump like just mm-hmm. it, it was a it was a shutout and so I'm so fascinated by and curious by and a little bit aggrieved, (laughs) more than a little bit aggrieved by people who know Democrats, uh, you know, and these are small towns, right, out here. So they know the Democrats who are running. They, they, They support their platform. They support their agenda and want to see Democrats locally. But how do we lose them on the federal level? I'm I'm not quite sure I figured that out. I hope to figure that out in my time here. And another race that I really want to talk about, well, there's a couple more I want to talk about. One of the seats that Democrats retained with great difficulty was Senator Gary Peters um, out of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. We, didn't, I don't, we didn't call that, nobody called that race on election night. It was decided, you know, in, in the next day or two. And Gary Peters held on to his seat by a razor thin margin. And so you have to wonder why. And I know you and I see a lot of these headlines, but we we dig into the data. If you break it down by county, Gary Peters outperformed Joe Biden in a lot of blue collar labor focused counties, including Macomb County, where the phrase Reagan Democrat was was born back in the day. These are people who are Democrats, but 
are also quite centrist and will often, you know, switch over to the Republican side and had been so for quite some time. So these folks, they voted for Gary Peters, the Democrat, to represent them in the United States Senate, but they voted for Donald Trump to represent them as the president of the United States. Another race that is truly, truly fascinating because it it had federal implications. Well, before we hop into that, I wanted to take a second and and talk about Arkansas for a hot second. Oh, we um, just speaking just briefly to the ideas of polls and the accuracy. You know, the the chair of the DCCC, you know, was quoted saying something was wrong here across the entire political world. Our polls, Senate polls, governor polls, presidential polls, Republican polls, public polls, turnout <laughs> modeling, and every other metric of success never materialized. And um, we had a really amazing race um, here in in our county for for Joyce Elliott for the House, the U.S. House, and. Every single poll had them within two points, within marginal error of her winning this seat. And the day came and the margin was about 10 points. And I, I have to get the final numbers here, but it was just wildly wrong. And and nobody is saying that any campaign was ran horribly or had bad management, but these polls are wildly, wildly wrong. And we are one of two counties um, here in Arkansas that went blue. But to your point, you know, these house seats span multiple counties and most of them went red. So just wanted to pop that in there before we go back to another state. But yeah, these polls are wrong and I want to get into you know, what's going to happen with the new census trend line, uh, with, with the new census numbers and um, redistricting that's going to be coming up before our next election. But you were saying there was another state you were curious about and wanted yeah. to dive deeper into? Yes. But before I dive into that, you've uh, brought up another tangent for me to jump on really quickly. Redistricting is decided is decided by state legislatures. Mm-hmm. And state legislatures are uh, the, the playground of the Republican Party. They the win them. All the time on election night, the Democrats were absolutely unable uh, to flip a single House legislature. And you know, I'm I'm pretty close to Houston. There was a chance that you know some Democrats would win out of Houston, which is a you know a, a liberal city, as evidenced by the fact that a lot of voter suppression tactics were employed by the Republican Party to stop people from uh, being able to cast their vote in the election out here. So we we can't win these house legis- these uh, state house legislatures, and the Republicans actually flipped the house in New Hampshire. Right. Where we house and Senate. We are not competitive on on local races on state levels and lower, and that is a problem. And that is really what it comes down to. the The question that I don't know if the progressives or the centrists have an answer to: How do we? do our strategic messaging and what should strategic message be? I have, I have no idea. And and just to break down some of the numbers um, from the national conference of state legislatures, there were 5,876 scheduled legislative races in 44 States. And to your point, only two New Hampshire house and Senate changed hands. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just not going to cut it. How do we adjust that message? How do we get ballots realigned? And on average, you know, 12 chambers change um, party each election cycle. But if you look back for the past two cycles, we're at a draw from who gained and lost um, chambers in these elections. And I think we're on to something with the centrist conversation that we're having, 
because I just I can't help but wonder the polls are asking opinions and aspirations. What would you like to see? What do you value? But when it comes to who people think have the political might and wherewithal to accomplish some of these ideals, they might dissipate at the polls. You know what I mean? And and I'm just curious what's going to happen with this new census data and redistricting, because of course there are laws in place to prevent gerrymandering and to prevent, you know, all these racially motivated tactics to, of course, sway things to whoever's in power. But, you know, this is going to be one of the first times in my life that I'm conscious of these redistricting. And I'm really wondering what's going to happen with that, number one, because there's been such a shift, I feel, in where people are living and want to live in these rural parts of America. People are coming back to the cities. So what is that going to mean to the once suburban, you know, Mecca that is now turning into, you know, the South Main districts or the areas that are kind of midtown versus the far, far, you know, golf club community um, community developments that I just don't think millennials are investing in like um, our parents did. So I'm, I'm curious, curious what that means and how we align a message around not only where the census data shows people live and the makeup of their ethnicity and their income and their family, but as a party in general. I, I, I'm, I think we're on the right trend here, but I, I wonder if we're missing something, but I feel, I feel like this is going to be the conversation for a while. You know, how do we get us back to the middle? That's absolutely right. But here's the thing in the era of Trump, who has just overseen the erosion of our ideals at home and completely taken a sledgehammer to American credibility all around the world. The fact that Democrats couldn't capitalize on that opportunity to offer a completely different, compelling, powerful message. It's a message that I believe stands so strong on its own, but we weren't able to convert that into votes. We weren't able to flip a single state legislature and we lost one. That is embarrassing. And so how do we fix our messaging problem? And I think that, you know, as centrists, we like the idea. We love the idea. We want to see change on, on the way that our government has approached climate change. We want to see an expansion in the government's role of addressing healthcare. Democrats on the left are eager for something even more ambitious, but no one really has an answer to the central problem of, of messaging. And I think it's because we don't know how to communicate with a lot of voters. And I wonder why. Is it that we've just completely forfeit the South and, and parts of the Midwest? I hope not, because I will say that the fact that we won Senate seats out of Colorado and Arizona is really important to to keep in mind. We ran incredible candidates who had name recognition and a record of success, and, and people knew, voters in those states knew what they stood for. So out of Colorado, we had former Governor John Hickenlooper, now the senator. And in Arizona, we ran Mark Kelly, astronaut Mark Kelly, of course, and his wife was, you remember that horrible tragedy where she was shot at at a a Meet the Constituents event and members of her team were also wounded and and fatally so. And it sent shockwaves through the country at the time that it did. And since that was many years ago, Mark Kelly has continued to be someone that people know and know what he stands for. And same with Hickenlooper. So if we can get great candidates with effective messaging, I think that's part one of how to grow the center, which is what I think you and I care passionately about. But 
how are we supposed to, do you think, approach this conversation within the Democrat Party about how to avoid these kinds of losses um, in in the future? Right now, if you were to listen to progressives, if you were to listen to centrists, everyone has similar descriptions of each other. You're arrogant, you're bereft of creativity, and you are generationally obsolete, you know? But here's the thing. Democrats are relying on Joe Biden, who will, you know, turn 78 soon, Chuck Schumer, who's Senate Senate Minority Leader, possibly Senate Majority Leader, we don't know yet, will turn 70. Um, Nancy Pelosi is 80 years old. 78-year-old Mitch McConnell will We started on the age. Right. It's a whole nother episode. But yeah, you're you're exactly right. And and my answer to you is, you know, you just have to I mean, I can't wait to get more and more exit data and more and more polling and information about the election, but five million people, right, is what gave Democrats the push. And I think the most important conversation to have for me amongst the party is, you know, Donald Trump is not the best example of leadership. In fact, he's the worst example all around the world, all across the country. We recognize that he's not the leader that we deserve, but yet 70 million people, right, decided that this was the vote for them. This was the candidate that reflected them or their choice. And I think that's what I have to remind everybody is people stand by their vote, even if it is representing the worst of our American democracy. How do we get everybody, Republicans included, to admit that maybe there's a different way, you know, and, and having rhetoric and strong policy recommendations doesn't bring anybody to the table. And so I think Democrats have to recognize that in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families specifically, you know, we have individuals that voted for President Trump. And we have to understand and respect that in some capacity, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it's a clear it's a clear example of what can go wrong with the Republican Party. You know, it, it's it's a conversation amongst Democrats, but it's also how do we bring more of America back into a conversation of compromise? And, you know, I feel like Donald Trump represents the epitome of not budging on absolutely anything. And and I think the, the, the Democratic Party right now is the exact mirror image of that on the other side. So I think it's an internal conversation. And then I think it starts much more closer to home. And I think that's where it gets very uncomfortable. What I do want people to start viewing politicians as and viewing government as is that there is no perfect candidate out there. There is no perfect elected official out there. And there is no one policy that will get you exactly everything you need. So there was a metaphor that I read somewhere, I wish I remembered where, to just sort of see um, people running for office as a transportation system, like a public transportation system. Is the train going to get you to the doorstep of where you want to go? No, of course not. But they'll get you pretty close. And that's what we need to be recognizing. And in, if in 2020, this election, I think, was about mobilization, stimulating turnout among people whose minds are already made up, right? I know in the month before the election or the two months before, we were all wondering who the heck is still an undecided voter today. So it was all about turnout. And now I think 
as a party, we need to start realizing that we need to switch from the mobilization element to the persuasion element, right? Growing the pool of potential supporters through arguments to the people whose minds are open. Now, obviously, there is a uh, contingent of people who do not believe in facts. Some of them were at the march in Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days. They do not care that, you know, all of the courts have dismissed um, Trump's lawsuit citing fraud in the election. They'll continue to believe that this was rigged, even though there is absolutely zero evidence. And uh, some of the courts... um, Some of the cases that have been thrown out have been dismissed by Republican-appointed judges. So that's where they are. I'm not talking about that contingent of people. I do believe, though, that there are a lot of people, especially when you look at all of the split tickets that people cast on this election night, that are open to hearing the persuasion and are open to hearing compelling Democrat messaging. And we don't seem to know how to do that. So you know how in Nebraska... You get, you know, four electoral votes and then Nebraska District 2, which is Omaha, gets its own electoral vote. Well, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden won that one electoral vote out of Nebraska. It was that one district, Nebraska 2. That same district sent a Republican to Congress, Donald Bacon, which is, you know, a funny name. But um (laughs) <laughs> that's that's what that's what we're that's what we're seeing. And I think Stacey Abrams, by the way, shout out to the Queen, Stacey Abrams. Yes, um, we need to end on Georgia. We can't go without <laughs> mentioning and celebrating her, but go ahead. Would she appreciate being called a queen because it's not very democratic? Um, but you know, whatever. It's okay. It's we've okay. Got, all the exceptions to be made, it's gonna be for her. She did this she did the hard work. She did the hard work for the last two years. It is not sexy, it is thankless. It is just a tough slog day in and day out. There are no cameras. There's no, you know, flashy interviews with the New York Times. She's just working hard, fundraising, getting people registered to vote, telling them why they need to vote and why they should vote Democrat. And the woman is, and I think there's, you know, a consensus among all operatives and and people in the press. Her success was the Democrats' success in flipping Georgia would just not have been possible without the almost 800,000 new registered voters that she brought in. And I think she learned a lot of lessons from what happened when she ran for governor. And she she saw how she saw how the game was being played by the Republicans. She saw the major attacks on access to being able to safely and securely and freely vote. She saw the voter suppression in full force. And she said, all right, well, I'm going to meet you there. I'll see you on the playing field. And she showed out. And my God, may we all have such powerful failures in our lives to just be able to come back and show them how it's done. And I wish that the Democrats would invest, you know, like a 50 state voter initiative and just put some money into it and hire some operatives and hire some organizers um, to just get out there and start slowly building. Is Oklahoma going to go blue anytime soon? Probably not. But you know what? They had Democrat governors in the 90s. We're not super duper far off. It's not as though it's impossible. We will do it one day. Why not start laying the groundwork? Republicans are putting in $20 million more on the Georgia runoff right. races, which will bring their total investment to $120 million no, in this will be, Georgia. This will be the most expensive race in modern history. Like this win that I'm hoping that the, that the Democrats can secure is is the last piece of the is the last lever that I want President elect Joe Biden to have um, control of the House and Senate to get our country back on track to really set the bar 
for the next presidential campaign to where he made the most inroads possible in his first four years. And and Georgia, you know, I think that therein lies some of the answer is voter registration and voter turnout. And in this pandemic, if taught me anything, we can vote, right? <laughs> like in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a recession, in the middle of every other issue, drama happening in professional, personal lives, we still found a way to vote. And I just want to celebrate that. And I want to, of course, give Georgia the appreciation and respect they deserve for registering 800,000 new voters. And I, I just think that this next generation, this new electorate that I know is coming out of high school, going into college, or maybe deferring for the next five years if COVID doesn't go away, our, our hope, I think, is, is one way to, to tackle this. But um, I, I think we've really done a pretty good dive deep into some of these candidates and, run, and um, campaigns to figure out what's missing. And I think there's work to be done, and I hope we can pick this back up, maybe find some talent, um, a guest speaker to kind of give us a better look into what's really happening behind the scenes. I think so. We should do that. But I will say that if you are going to put some faces to the progressive and moderate debates that are happening, um, your you know your signature progressive is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, out of New York, famously unseated Joe Crowley. And um, she's been accusing the centrists of relying on magical thinking rather than grappling with changing power dynamics. And Congressman Connor Lamb, who is a centrist who won re-election in his swing district in Pennsylvania, you know, he said that when push comes to shove, the younger members who have come from these really tough districts and tough races don't always feel like the leadership takes our input as seriously as we would like. So Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has absolutely earned the right to lecture moderate Democrats on how to connect with a rising generation and how to effectively utilize a digital presence. She is incredibly powerful and popular on the social media networks and uses it to her advantage. That's something every single Democrat needs to be doing, especially, as you said, Nate, we've got a pandemic going, so we don't get to do grassroots in-person organizing the way that we have always been able to do. But Congressman Lamb understands that Democrats cannot win unless they constantly practice the politics of reassurance. Is that fair? Absolutely not. It's also incredibly frustrating that we always have to be very gentle and reassure people about things when the right wing just gets to say outlandish, outrageous things. And then we see that the establishment Republican Party goes with it. We see the relentlessness of Mitch McConnell and and Lindsey Graham and so many other people. And yet we're the ones who always have to be held to a higher standard. But Connor Lamb understands that. And he's been rewarded for that because he's used this self-discipline in softening the sharp conversations that he's had to have in his swing district. So we know who the blue states are. I, I don't like to separate states, but for the electoral purpose. That's what it is. Yeah, it is. We know who the blue, blue states are. We know who the red states are. I just think that we need to be competitive in all 50 at all times. And why the Midwest isn't staunchly Democrat is honestly a complete failure of our messaging. That should be a blue wall 
for for a much wider margin than what we than what we were able to eke out, you know, with yeah. Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. Those people are the the backbone of the Democratic Party and they're exactly what created the party and fueled the party. And how are how how have we lost the connection with them should be a very serious conversation. So I do hope that there's a lot of things that you know, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives need to be listening to. And there's a lot of things that centrists like us need to be listening to. But it just seems like there's a lot of lecturing and um, surliness that needs to go away. That's what, you know, That that's kind of being our own self-inflicted wound when it comes to getting back some of our supporters and practicing yeah. the politics of persuasion. I do believe so much in the democratic platform. I 100% think the arguments stand on their own and how do we articulate them and communicate them is where the rift is. But looking at all of the elections you and I just cited and ran down the data on, America's open to it. We have a lot of we have a lot of split voters. Yeah, and you know, and to kind of put a wrap on a bit of our conversation, I think it, a quote from Representative Abigail Spanberger from um, Virginia says it best. You know, if we're classifying Tuesday as, as a success, we are going to get torn apart in 2022. And and I think we just have to have that conversation. And we're going to have to concede and compromise more than we probably want to, to find that platform, to find that new voter, to find that centrist Republican who might just take a step to the right, you know, to the left, really speaking, to um, to get on the Democratic ticket, you know, to get to get their ballot more in line with what we're going to need to get this country back to what I know it stands for. Absolutely. Well, this is this is an ongoing conversation that we will be totally popping into and popping back into for quite some time, and. Um, I do want to just remind our dear listeners that we will talk about other things besides politics. And actually, our very next podcast is going to be a sharp departure from the political arena. Hard left. Hard left turn. How about that? Hard left turn. (laughs) We're going to be talking about what the coronavirus pandemic has done to the dating scene. And I know that I've got some stories, Nate. I know you've got some stories, and we want to hear your stories. So find us on Instagram. We're at Trendlines Podcast. And just go ahead and slide into our DMs and let us know how dating has been. Have you been filtering people based on how diligently they follow CDC guidelines? Do you put people through the Fauci test? Are you socially distancing on your first dates? Do you have phone calls or virtual dates before <laughs> to see if it's worth seeing someone in person? Um, do you share if you're immunocompromised? I don't know. These oh. are things we want to know. How, how is this working for you? Are you trying new apps? Have you given up? We want to know. And we'll have a link as well on our Instagram to leave us a message. If you want to actually leave a voicemail, we can listen and incorporate it into our next show. But until then, thank you for tuning in. And we cannot wait to catch you next time on Trend Lines Podcast. Bye, guys. Bye.